Before we look into God's Word together this morning, there's something I want to clarify and then something I want to announce. This year, unlike last year, I will not be spending our weekends preaching from passages that you read the previous week as part of our 91-week journey through the Scriptures. Last week we did, or last year, excuse me, we engaged in a 91-week journey over the last year and a half, actually, through the Scriptures, and each weekend I lifted the teaching from a portion that we had read the previous week. We're not doing that this year. Now, we are continuing our 91-week journey through the Scriptures starting in February under the title of 91 Weeks with the Holy Spirit. You'll have the same reading schedule as you had previously. You'll have Pastor Soper's commentary available to you as you did previously. But each week I'll be adding a brief commentary on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit as revealed in that reading. But that will be made available to you online and through an app and in print form. It will not be a part of our weekend teaching. Our weekend teaching will focus on the New Testament book of Acts, and I'll be preaching through that entire book over the course of this calendar year. So 91 weeks with the Holy Spirit, that's about your personal, daily, devotional reading in the Word of God. Eternity in their hearts is about our corporate study of the book of Acts each weekend. Now the announcement. As we said last weekend, over the course of this year of expanding influence, we want to make clear the vision that God has set before us. Then we want to make decisions as a congregation about pursuing that vision. And then we're going to ask each of you to make personal commitments so that you can carry forth your part in that vision. That means we've got to do a lot of communicating, a lot of communicating, and a lot of equipping people to make their very best spirit-led decision. And the magnitude of that task is too much for me to engage in addition to my regular responsibilities. So I've asked a former staff member who's still a part of the congregation, Dr. John Stanko, to return to a contracted position here at the church over the course of the next year or so and lead our efforts at helping you grasp the vision, understand the vision, and engage the vision. And so you're going to be hearing a lot from him, and he's going to be doing interviews with staff and leadership and so on, using every platform imaginable so that you clearly understand what God is calling us to and can make an informed decision about your role in it. So please pray for John as he engages that task. I have utmost confidence in his gift set, his character, and his ability. He served five years as one of our leadership pastors, again has continued in the congregation, but now will be assuming this temporary role of leadership among us. Now it's time for our second installment of our year-long study of the New Testament book of Acts, looking at it through the lenses of an Old Testament statement found in the book of Ecclesiastes. God has placed eternity in the human heart. Now last week I suggested several things and I want to review them before we embark upon today's study. I suggested that that statement, God has placed eternity in the human heart, indicates several things. Number one, all of us have a God-given hunger for the permanent. 
We want a never-ending relationship with the eternal God, and we want to invest our lives in things that are significant and sustainable, not things that have an expiration date stamped upon them. Second, the eternity in the human heart can never be ignored. It can be misdirected, but it can never be ignored. It will either trigger an increasing devotion to God, or it will trigger an increasing addiction to substitutes for God. Third, eternity in the heart and expanded and expanding influence are inseparable. Because God is not a God of the status quo. He's always moving forward in His kingdom. And when we align our lives with God's heartbeat, His influence in us and His influence through us will expand. We will experience renewal and the world will experience redemption. And we're going to be reminded today that a necessary part of our own renewal And a necessary part of the world's redemption is our ability to handle something that we don't much care for, something that we find rather uncomfortable. In the opening lines of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 4, we read that gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. Say that word. Wait. Wait for what the Father had promised. The title of our teaching this weekend is Eternity Can Wait. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Holy Spirit, enable me to accurately preach and teach your truth. By your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our understanding that we might apply your truth. And we pray this for the honor of Christ, for the sake of his mission in the world, and for the sake of people who don't know him yet, but need to know him desperately. And as always, we pray these things in his great name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. When God wants to expand his influence in the world, he calls his followers to take strategic risks, risks that he has ordered. And the opening lines of Acts affirm that fact. Jesus literally called his disciples to lay their lives on the line because they were to bear witness to him in their hood in Jerusalem, and in Judea. Problem is, they were well known in their hood. They were known to the religious and political gang leaders of their hood, the same people who had called for Jesus' crucifixion, the same people who would protect their turf at any cost and by any means. It was a dangerous assignment. But Jesus didn't stop there. He said, you're also to expand your witness to hoods like Samaria and the Gentile nations. Now, in those places, the disciples would be seen as a rival gang, invading someone else's religious and political turf. And doing that can get you killed. And it got some of them killed. But 
Jesus never hands us a knife when he sends us into a gunfight. We read that in the book of Zechariah. I'm just teasing. <laughs> Don't try to look that up. It's not in there. See? Jesus always equips his risk takers before he asks them to take the risk. So, before he outlined their intimidating, dangerous assignment, he spent 40 days erasing their doubts about his resurrection. We read that he spent 40 days with them, offering them many convincing proofs that he was alive and that he was well and that he was powerful. Then he explained to them what God was up to in the world. He explained the kingdom of God. So Jesus spent 40 days bolstering their courage and giving them insight. But God's risk takers need more than courage and they need more than insight. They also need power, the ability to perform the task. And it wasn't quite time for them to receive that power. So Jesus commanded them to do something that runs very contrary to our human nature. He said, wait a few days. It was like he fired up his team in the locker room, and then when they were ready to go out, closed the locker room door and said, now wait. And they were about to learn something that they would need to be reminded of again and again and again. They were about to learn that the eternal God is never in a hurry. His concepts of time transcend our concepts of time. That's why Scripture says a day with God is like a thousand years for us. God is not bound by time. He doesn't wear a watch. He doesn't follow a calendar. And he doesn't adjust his agenda in response to our nervous fidgeting. Hurry up and do something is not a commandment of God. Don't just stand there. Do something is not a commandment of God. Luke's account of the early church reminds us early and often that God's expanding influence is often found on the other side of God-ordered waiting. When I was a boy, my parents frequently employed an old adage that was commonly heard back in the day. Given our culture's addiction to immediate gratification, I fear that this adage has now found a place on the endangered saying list. My parents used to say, good things come to those who wait. You've heard it too, haven't you? And it was their way of encouraging a virtue that we all admire in other people, but stubbornly resist in ourselves, patience. I remember I didn't care for that saying much whenever my parents would pull it out and use it. It felt like a soft no. But I learned over time they were right. And Jesus' disciples would learn over time that his command to wait was also right. Because Acts illustrates again and again that good things come to those who wait, providing their wait is ordered by God. 
And that's an important caveat. Because waiting can be little more than procrastination disguised as precaution. Or fear masquerading as forethought. Or defiance posing as deliberation. But when our steps are ordered, or our stops, excuse me, are ordered by the same God who orders our steps, good things always follow. But let's be frank, acknowledging that in church and accepting it in your life are two different things. We all struggle with unanticipated delays. And we come by that stubborn tendency naturally. Because our ancestors, Adam and Eve, lost paradise primarily because of their impatience. They couldn't wait for God to increase their knowledge in his perfect time. So they accepted the offer of a quick fix. And as their descendants, we often follow suit with predictably negative consequences. None of us likes to be on the receiving end of the word wait. Have you noticed? We begin chafing inside even before it's spoken. When we sense it's coming, we begin to chafe. It feels like a frontal assault on our freedom, an attack on our autonomy. And in a culture that believes pleasure is a right, in a culture that believes a pleasure delayed is a pleasure denied rather than one that's intensified, waiting loses all of its appeal. And even those who grasp the eternity in their hearts discover it's far easier to work for God than it is to wait upon Him. But sometimes our very first work is waiting. And we'll be better positioned to fulfill our strategic assignment if, as we wait, we keep some important things in mind. First, Jesus instructed his followers to wait for a promise. And waiting for a promise from God is a far cry from waiting for a break, waiting for some windfall, waiting for some other person to change, or waiting for your circumstances to change. Waiting for a promise is different than the waiting that has its roots in fear or in doubt or in what we like to call the paralysis of analysis, overthinking a thing. You see, God's commands to wait are preludes to promises. And I say that because when God makes a promise, the issue is never, never, never fulfillment. It's simply timing. When God's on record that he's going to do something, he's going to do something. It's just a matter of timing. And if you'll remind yourself as you wait of that fact, it will sustain your hope and it will suffocate worry. And it'll do both of those things when you're tempted to despair and to doubt. And trust me, when God calls you to wait, you will be tempted to do both of those things, to despair and to doubt. Second, and I hope you get this one, God's calls to wait are not intended to test our character, but to prepare us for our assignment. 
That's so important, I want you to read it with me. God's calls to wait aren't intended to test our character, but to prepare us for our assignment. You see, the idea that God calls us to wait to test us is popular. But I'd like to say with no apology, it is biblically absurd. It is a stubborn myth that serves us badly. And I suspect it is rooted in our insatiable hunger for control. Let me illustrate. If God is testing me in some delay, all I need to do is find out what he wants, pass the test, and then I can move on. And that leaves me feeling like I'm in control. But here's the simple truth. The God who knows your innermost thoughts does not need to test you to find out what's in you. (laughs) He already knows what's in you. He knows you better than you know yourself. In fact, much of your renewal is nothing more than actually believing God when he tells you who you are and what you are. Why would God need to test you when he knows you inside out and outside in? be a colossal waste of God's time. You see, the disciples weren't instructed to wait until they reach maturity, to wait until they pass some mythical test. They were commanded to wait a few days for the spiritual power essential to their assignment, the power that God had promised. And that affirms a third important fact. Despite our illusions of control, the length of our wait usually depends more upon God than upon us. Jesus didn't say, guys, you're going to receive the promised power when you reach certain benchmarks. When I see you praying fervently, when I see you fasting regularly, when I see you praising me continually, When I see you all together in one place, hands joined, singing kumbaya. When I see you whipped up to a fever pitch and all ready, then I'll give you the power. No, Jesus said, it'll be in a few days. He didn't ask him to do anything other than wait. He didn't say wait and pray, wait and fast, wait and worship. Wait and sing. Wait and join hands. He just said, wait a few days. See, he was waiting for the Jewish Hebrew feast of Shavuot, the feast of weeks, when the Jewish people would celebrate the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. God had chosen the day of that celebration as the appropriate day to send the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was the fulfillment of everything the law pointed toward. Jesus had already chosen the day. So the timing didn't depend on what they were doing or not doing. So when God tells you to wait, don't ask him what you need to do so that you can move on. And we do that. I've had people sit with me and say, Pastor, I've been waiting and I keep saying, God, what do I need to do so I can move on? (laughs) And I'm not getting any answer. Well, no, you aren't. Because it's not about you. And it's not about moving on. And you're not in control of this. 
It's about God's ordained timing. See, it will rarely be necessary for you to say, what do I need to do before I move on? And if it's necessary, God will shout that into your spirit and make it clear in no uncertain terms. Now, did you notice the initial response of the disciples to the command to wait? Wasn't one of their finer moments. Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus must have felt like going, ah. Three years I've been trying to explain this to you, Lucy, and you still don't get it. They were still looking for Judas's dream. A political kingdom, the overthrow of Rome, the liberation of Israel. They weren't looking for the kingdom of God, the rule of God in redeemed hearts. And I love Jesus' response. He essentially said, guys, you're on a need-to-know basis, and in this case, you don't need to know. And then he restated the promise. And that illustrates a fourth vital principle for those who wait. When God says wait, listening is more important than doing. We want to rush out and do something. God wants us to stop and listen for something. Because like those disciples, when God calls us to wait, our initial assumptions about what he's up to are probably wrong and need adjustment. And as we listen over time, it enables us to see things as God sees them. And then we can avoid working really hard on the wrong project. Now, shortly after telling his disciples to wait, immediately after articulating their assignment once again, what did Jesus do? Up and out. He ascended into heaven and left them stand there all alone. And you can try to make that a really nice, warm, fuzzy moment, but it, it wasn't. They had to be blown away. They had to feel a lot of anxiety and a lot of vulnerability. See, it's a reminder that waiting often involves the removal of something we have come to rely upon so that something better can take its place. And the interval between those two things leaves us feeling naked and vulnerable. Now, Jesus had made it clear earlier. Guys, it's better if I go and the Holy Spirit takes my place. And he said what he meant, and he meant what he said. If Jesus had stayed on this earth in bodily form, can you imagine how long you'd have to wait to have a couple minutes with him? Take a number. 8,763,000 In his incarnate form he was limited in space and time He said but if I go the invisible Holy Spirit will take my place It'll be me in every believer Christ in me the hope of glory And you won't have to wait in line You won't have to take a number I'll be with you always all the time, even to the end of the age. So it's better if I go and the Holy Spirit takes my place. The time for that transition had come. But again, think of the vulnerability for those men. Jesus was no longer seen. And the Holy Spirit that was coming would never be seen because he's invisible. How would they know he'd arrived if they couldn't see him? 
But feeling vulnerable can be a good thing if it drives you back upon God. And I suspect sometimes that may be the primary reason God calls us to wait. Now, before I close, let me make an important observation about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. These disciples stood at a historic, never-to-be-repeated threshold in redemptive history. They were alive in that moment when Jesus ascended and left and before the Holy Spirit came and took his place. So standing at that threshold, they had to wait for the Holy Spirit. It was inevitable. But now that that once-for-all transition has transpired, you don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit. The moment you are born again, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. If anybody says, well, look, the disciples had to wait, you have to wait, that's just biblically dumb. It really is. That'd be like saying if you trust God, you have to cross the Red Sea. No, they had to wait. You and I don't. But believers sometimes confuse those things, and it's a reminder that one believer's wait is not another believer's mandate. Because God calls somebody else to wait doesn't mean you've got to follow that pattern. Don't seek to emulate someone else's experience. Follow God into your own experience. For example, some people when they move into a deeper work of the Holy Spirit in their life, they speak in the gift of tongues. And that's, that's beautiful. That's, that's God's sovereignty. But the problem is they make it a formula. They go out and say, well, for you to have a deeper work of the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. See, that's just nonsense. And it defies clear teaching of Scripture. Don't try to emulate somebody else's experience. Follow God into your own. Well, it's never easy to wait on God. Because it requires a willingness to bear uncertainty, to carry the substantial weight of unanswered questions, to handle the inevitable intrusions of doubt. But as the disciples would discover again and again and again, God is in the weights of his people. And what he does during the wait may be even more important than what he wants to do through you after the wait is over. See, God isn't going to win all of the world, but he wants to win all of you. Waiting exercises your faith. Waiting increases your patience. Waiting trains your discernment. Waiting deepens your submission. Waiting increases your ability to bless others and to be blessed yourself. Ten years ago, when ACAC was growing rapidly and hundreds of people were joining us on an annual basis, we packed out this place. There was no more capacity. Human logic said, you need to build. And God said, don't build. Wait. And I vetted that with our leadership, and they agreed. That was God. So we've been waiting now for ten years. Let me tell you something. In my 40-plus years of ministry, I've learned it is a whole lot harder to lead a weight <laughs> than to lead a charge up a mountain. Man, when you put a goal before God's people and you say, let's take that mountain, they follow. But when you look at God's people and say, ready, set, wait. <laughs> let's wait for it. 
Well, then they look at you and wonder, uh, do you still hear from God? (laughs) But good things happen to those who wait. Now God is shouting to us, to our leadership, now it's time to expand. And as I look back, I see things God has been doing in the past 10 years that have positioned us to maximize expansion and to expand our influence for His glory. Things that were not true 10 years ago. We would have been ahead of the curve 10 years ago. Let me close with a personal story. Years ago, Karen and I stopped at Disney World in Florida for two days on our way to a conference. Now, when you've only got two days for all of Disney World, you hustle. You want to see as many attractions and ride as many rides as possible, so you hustle. So we were right there the moment the gates opened. We ran to the first ride we wanted to be on, and when we got off it, we began running towards the next attraction when a Disney employee stopped us and said, would you please stand over here for a few moments and just wait and I'll get back to you? I was a little annoyed. (laughs) And after waiting about 10 minutes, my old nature began to reassert itself. (laughs) And I was getting more than a little annoyed. I'm gonna miss a ride. What in the heck is this about? And as I'm waiting, this, this dude asks some other unfortunate people to join us. And we're all looking at each other like, what did we do? What, am I a security risk? And then he finally came over when I was really annoyed and he said, I've got good news for you. We're celebrating an anniversary this year, and each day we're giving just 25 of our thousands of guests what we call a dream pass. You're the lucky recipients. For the rest of the day, you just show your pass, and you never wait in line. You go to the front of the line. (laughs) Now, I, I also learned they had a special way that you could do that. Because, honey, if you walk past all the people who are in those lines, they stone you to death. You don't, you don't even survive to get on the run. So Karen and I spent the rest of the day right to the front of the line, covering more things than we ever would have covered if I had said, phooey, with this, I'm out of here and rushed to the next ride. Now, when you're hot, you're hot. (laughs) The next day, we rushed to the park, and after the first ride, a Disney employee says, would you wait here for a few moments? (laughs) Now I'm not ticked off. (laughs) Now I'm doing my happy dance. (laughs) I said, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Sure enough. We saw everything, left the second day at three at the afternoon, and found a family coming in and said, here's what this will do for you. Knock yourself out for the rest of the day. Expanded influence. God did something for us, and it positioned us to do something for somebody else because they were happy to get that. I had a friend for life. They still write. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing. 
So the disciples discovered early on that if you really understand the eternity in your heart, you can wait. Because divinely ordered waiting is the prelude to the expanded influence of God in you and through you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we don't do very well at waiting. We fidget. But I pray that we would look at waiting differently and grow in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.